come to a new series of sermons these, these summer nights, and we'll be working our way through the text of First Kings and some of Second Kings as we make our way through the life of Elijah. And as we'll see, I trust there's some remarkable parallels between Elijah's time and ours. Elijah ministered in the midst of a time of spiritual decline and idolatry, where people were turning away left and center from the worship of the living God. And of course, we see that happening in America all around us. Secondly, he ministered in the midst of a time of cultural pressure and opposition. The state, namely Ahab, more about that in a moment, uh, Ahab and Jezebel opposed him viciously and actively. And again, we see that in the, the rise of this cancel culture and wokeism and the alphabet mafia who are putting increasing pressure on Christians, especially in the workplace, to back down and stand down from our Christian convictions. And then, um, thirdly, Elijah will give us, I think, I trust, a, a wonderful example of what it means to stand faithful and true amidst a hostile environment. His, his resolve, his courage, his determination to remain faithful to God's Word, which is a constant theme in his prophetic ministry, I trust will be an encouragement to us as well. And of course, we'll see God's providence God tells us, God gives us stories in the Bible um, so that we learn to see the unseen hand of God in our lives, right? We don't see God at work all the time. But when you turn to the Bible and you see the stories of men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and um, Joshua and the judges, Goliath, and tonight and later Elijah, we begin to see the patterns of God's handiwork, uh, the way He works. Police officers will see patterns of crime, and they will detect the same criminal at work by his M.O. And God, of course, is much better than a criminal. He's, he's working in the background, but we see His M.O. in these stories. And sometimes when he's most, He seems to be most absent, He's actually most present, like in the book of Esther, for example, where His name is never mentioned, and yet the apparent absence of God from the pages of the book actually stresses His presence at work in Esther's eyes, life, for all who have eyes to see. And so we will, I trust, have assurance as we read this story and, and come to face to face with not just the man Elijah, but the God of the man of Elijah, that we will learn the lesson that as God was with him, he shall be with you, and I trust also he shall be with me. And so let's turn then to this book, and we'll read together. And let's begin in 1 Kings 15, uh, verse 33. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Tirzah, and he reigned twenty-four years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam 
and in his sin which he made Israel to sin. And the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha, saying, Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam, and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will utterly sweep away Baasha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Anyone belonging to Baasha who dies in the city, the dogs will eat, and anyone of his of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Now the rest of the acts of Baasha and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Baasha slept with his fathers and was buried at Tirzah, and Elah his son reigned in his place. Moreover, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu to the son of, the son of Hanani against Baasha and his house, both because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. In the twenty-sixth year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah the son of Baasha began to reign over, the, over Israel in Tirzah, and he, he reigned two years. But his servant Zimri, a commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. When he was at Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household of Tirzah, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him in the twenty-seventh year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. When he began to reign, as soon as he had seated himself on the throne, he struck down all the house of Baasha. He did not leave him a single meal of his relatives or his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Baasha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet, for all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah, his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? In the twenty-seventh year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Tirzah. Now the troops were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, and the troops who were encamped heard it, said, Zimri has conspired, and he has killed the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So Omri went up from Gibbethon, and all Israel with him, and they besieged Tirzah. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Because of his sins that he committed doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Then the, two people of Israel? then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginneth, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginneth. So Tibni died and Omri became king. In the thirty-first year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for twelve years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. Now, it's interesting. He bought 
he bought um, the hill for two talents of silver. You might remember this morning that Hosea bought um, his wife for 15 talents of silver, which is an exceedingly greater sum. And uh, I don't think inflation was quite as big back then as it was in our day. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now, the rest of the acts of Omri that he did and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a slight thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he, he built to Samaria, and built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Zagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of God it endures forever. May he add his blessing to its reading and to its preaching this evening. Now, we come this evening to a new sermon series in the life of Elijah. By any measure, Elijah was a remarkable man who lived amidst remarkable times. And as is the case with most figures of history, if you want to understand the man, you must understand the times in which he lived, right? Now, Elijah ministered. If you remember this morning, we said Hosea is ministering around about 750 B.C., right? Well, Elijah's ministry is about 100 years before that. He ministered from, nine, uh, sorry, from 870 B.C. through to about 850 B.C., which makes him a ninth-century prophet. So, he's ninth-century prophet who says an eighth-century prophet. Now, just to take a step back from that and give you a kind of a, sort of a mental map for the history of the Old Testament, big dates. Abraham is about 2000 B.C. Um, David is about 1000 B.C., 1000 years after Abraham. The kingdom divides at 931 B.C. when Rehoboam made his disastrous choice about taxation following the young bucks, remember this morning? Fast forward about 200 years, the northern 
ten tribes are carried off into exile in around 722, 721 B.C., depending on what sources you follow. They're lost in the sands of Persia, never to be seen of or heard of again. And then the southern two tribes, Judah, Benjamin, they, and the Levites, they, um, they last longer and decline sore for various reasons we'll get to in a moment. Uh, but they aren't taken off until the 6th century. And you remember there were three deportations, 605 B.C., Daniel, and the, the, the young, smart, top-thinking young men are taken off, and, and, well, young men are taken from Jerusalem to Babylon to prepare them to be surrogate leaders later. They take them out of Jerusalem, first of all, and then hope to take Jerusalem out of them by cultural brainwashing. Then in 597 B.C., you remember Jehoiakim rebels against Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar swoops down. Jehoiakim vanishes. Nobody really knows what happens to him, although Jeremiah said he'd be cast outside the city and would be left to rot. And I kind of think either the people did that to him for being so stupid, or Nebuchadnezzar did that to him, but we don't know for certain. His son Jehoiakim and the royal family and the secret service bodyguards and and some of the nobles are taken off into exile. That's when Ezekiel's taken in 597 B.C. And then about 11 years later, when Zedekiah rebels against um, Nebuchadnezzar, old Nebi comes down and besieges the city in the time of Jeremiah, lays waste to Jerusalem and the temple, and the people, or the majority of them, are taken off into exile for almost um, 70 years right? Well, well, all that happened about 275 years after the end of Elijah's ministry. So, that's, that's some time, right? Elijah's back in around 870 to 850 B.C., I'm just giving you kind of like some kind of where to put them in history. So, wind back. Solomon dies, Rehoboam becomes king, he refuses to lower the taxes, listens to the young bucks, raises the taxes. My dad whispered, well, disciplined you with whips, I will discipline you with scorpions, remember? And that provoked the northern ten tribes to split from Judah, and God gave them into the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Jeroboam the first. He becomes the king of those northern ten tribes, you remember, and you remember we said this morning he made three critical mistakes, Jeroboam did. He made a new, new temples at Dan and Bethel. He made new gods, the golden, and the golden calves, golden bulls. And he made new priests. He made a new priesthood. And for those things, God leveled judgment upon Jeroboam. And from that moment on, kind of this refrain that kind of echoes after almost every northern king. He walked in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, as kind of not a good thing. And because of that, the northern tribes quickly slip into the spiritual abyss of darkness, much faster than the southern kingdom, for three reasons. First of all, the south had the temple, and because they had the temple, they had the blood sacrifices. And whenever you separate the people from the true worship of God, that always has disastrous spiritual effects, right? So, always remember that when you're moving city and town, you want to go to a place where there's a good church. When you're thinking about a new job or where you might go next, always think, where is a good church? If you cut your family off from, from solid 
biblical worship. It'll always have disastrous effects. And that's what really Jeroboam did in, in, in making these pagan bastard shrines and cutting his people off from the temple. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing was, because of that, the south had much more access to the Word of God. It's almost like a cell tower. It's almost like the temple acted a bit like a cell tower. And if you're too far away from the temple, you don't get the Word of God. Now, they did get the Word of God. Elijah speaks to them, and so does Hosea and Amos. But when you look at the major and minor prophets, it's not insignificant that only two of the prophets, Hosea and Amos, direct their ministry against Israel. All the rest speak to the south. So it's almost as if you have no temple, no mediated presence of God in the gospel of the Old Testament. You don't get the Word of God either. And that's a significant thing to denude your life from when you're, again, you want to be in a place where the Word of God comes home to your heart in truth and also hopefully in a felt sense of God's power. And then the third reason why the northern kingdom unravels faster is when a nation collapses spiritually, it always collapses sexually. When it collapses sexually, then it also collapses morally. When it collapses spiritually, sexually, and morally, it almost always then collapses into political chaos and discord as well. And you see that here in 1 Kings 16. Um, as the normal orderly succession of one king after the other is replaced by regicide, coup d'etat, and suicide, left, right, and center. It's, it's all very uh, Machiavellian. Hold on to power as, as best you can, and it's better to be feared than to be loved, seems to have been the ethos in House of Basha and the kings after him in the northern kingdom. So we get to 1 Kings 16 and 29, and we actually come into a new kind of chapter, not in the Bible, but in Israel's history. And in one sense, you get the sense, reading between the lines of these verses, that this was the best of times, and it was also the worst of times. It was the best of times in that for suddenly, Israel enjoyed a brief moment of political stability and financial prosperity. They enjoyed a time of political stability, right? If you look at this, suddenly there's been one king after the other, one guy reigning only seven days, the division in the time of, of um, Timbdi and Omri, and then suddenly you get Ahab coming to the throne and holding on to the throne for 22 years, right? And that's not to be snuffed at. That's 22 years of the stability. Up to that time, it was no fun being a king in Israel. It was a bit like Norm in Cheers when he walked in, and Sam, the bartender, said, how's it doing, Norm? And he goes, it's tough. He said, I live in a dog-eat-dog world, and I'm wearing milk-bone underwear. And it was like that, being a king in Israel. They're getting attacked on all sides. And suddenly, Ahab comes to the, to the, to the fore, and he's evidently the kind of man who knows how to hold on to power. Deceit, manipulation, cruelty, and murder— it's all, as I said, pretty Machiavellian. And it wasn't that Ahab was a better man. That's quite the reverse, of course. But he did know how to hold on to power and to keep control. And in some sense, that can be a good thing, right? Political stability is normally a good thing. It's good for national morale. It's good for national defense. And it's good for national business. 
And so, things weren't all bad in Ahab's time. There was political stability, and the people enjoyed some sense of peace. And from political stability, they enjoyed financial stability. Ahab's decision to marry Jezebel, most scholars see as a shrewd kind of international alliance. Uh, Jezebel is the daughter of Ethbaal, more about that in a second, who's the king of the Sidonians. And the, the, the of Sidon was a, a port city in the Taro-Phoenician um, culture, and they were uh, merchants with a vast navy, a port system, trade routes throughout the whole uh, Mediterranean. They made glassware, and they also made purple garments, which were worn by wealthy, rich people. We were kind of, you know, the, the, log, the logo-emblazoned, uh, that's how you know if you've spent money on clothes in our day. Is there kind of a polo guy on, on a horse, or is there some other, you know, uh, alligator or something on your shirt? Then you've you spent some bucks for your money. In those days, it was the color and how well it was dyed, and the Sidonians were masters in dyeing um, uh, clothes and, 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 and curtains and drapes and so forth and so on. And so, when you marry into that line, you suddenly get access for all of Israel's uh, trade opens up to the whole Mediterranean. And it would almost certainly have meant a boom time in Israel, financially speaking. People had then more money in their pockets, and we humans tend to like that. And in America, putting more money in people's pockets is often a recipe for a success in political office. So, it was the best of times, political stability and financial uh, prosperity. But reading beneath the surface, in fact, not even beneath, but right on the surface, we see also quickly these were the worst of times, times of spiritual apostasy. Ahab's soul was rotten to the core. He did evil, verse 30, more in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. In other words, he won the evil award. Now, that's significant, but it's significant because his dad did the same thing. Remember in the previous section in verse 25 and following, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking, literally the verb means to infuriate the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. So, Omri was bad. But Ahab, his son, is, an, is, a, is a wonderful illustration that when things are bad and before things get better, they can get, well, even worse. As, as Omri wins the evil award and leads the whole land into apostasy. He's also a perennial reminder to us that the line of good and evil is not drawn by the minds of men, but by the mind of God. Are you a good man this evening? Are you a good woman? Well, it doesn't matter what I think, and it doesn't even matter what you think. The real question is, what does God think? When God looks at you, what does He see? Now, most people, when you say that to them, especially in the church, will say to themselves, well, 
nobody's perfect. I mean, we're all sinners. Nobody's perfect. A.W. Petuser made the statement once that nobody's perfect is the saint's greatest complaint and the hypocrite's cushion. The saint's greatest complaint, nobody is perfect. Oh, I wish I was better than I was. I wish I'm better. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. It's the saint's greatest complaint, but it's also the hypocrite's cushion. Ah, no one's perfect. But that's not to say that all men stand on an equal footing before God. We are all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In that sense, there's no difference, right? But when the Bible judges the character of a man, especially a man in the covenant of community where the grace, gospel of grace is available, it's clear that some men are more righteous than others, and some, by the same measure, are more evil. And in the New Testament age, we have this sense, as we believe in Jesus and are justified and become legally, perfectly righteous before God, right? Without denying that, Paul will also warn the church, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed by the day of redemption. And he's not denying the doctrine of justification by faith alone when he says that. The way you speak to your wife, ladies, the way you speak back to your husband can grieve the Holy Spirit, even though you're justified. God doesn't go, I can't see your sin. Can't see it. No, can't see it. No, no. The way you speak can grieve God's Holy Spirit. He won't damn you for your sin if you're truly saved. That doesn't mean God doesn't see your sin. And that kind of grace boy doctrine that, that all men are equal, we're all equally wicked, doesn't matter who you are. Um, the Jim Elliot laying his life down in, the, in, the, in um, South America in the jungles is no better than, you know, a, a man hopelessly addicted to alcohol, drugs, and porn. That makes a mockery of the gospel. Paul prays, you remember, um, to the church in Colossians. And so, from the day we first heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul evidently has a theology that a, Christian, a justified Christian, no danger of being damned, you understand, but in his relationship to his Father and his day-to-day -day walk, we can be more or less pleasing to God. And you've got to hold both those truths in um, your intention as you live before God. The gospel didn't prevent Paul from saying I strive to live a life void of offense before God and before men. He didn't, say that he, didn't, he didn't stop him saying in Galatians 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked whatsoever. Don't worry what you sow. The grace of God will cover all of your mistakes. No, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Why? Because most men are. Whatsoever you sow, that you will also reap. There is a sowing and reaping logic of life that the gospel does not eradicate but rather it establishes. Do not be deceived. Whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. He who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. He who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap everlasting life. 
Whatever a life of fully pleasing to God looks like, it didn't look like the life of Ahab. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, and it was wicked. And so I'm asking you this evening, how does, what does God see when He looks at you? And I recognize those of you of tender conscience are going to be going, oh, no. Um, as I try to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, the, the afflicted are going to feel even worse, and the comforted are going to walk off saying nobody's perfect. But what does God see when He looks at you? Are you concerned? Does that, does that concern you? Does your, is, your is your conscience sensitive to the eye of God and the smile of God? Are you concerned about the way you walk, the things you watch on television, your social media use, uh, how you can flick through um, endless reams on Instagram and Snapchat and, and uh, other social media platforms. I'll not go on, I'll show my ignorance, but are, are you sensitive to that? And what's amazing is, as, as bad as Ahab was, he can get even worse. Um, and if that had been a light thing, verse 31, for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. That's significant. So remember, up to that time, Jeroboam the sin of Jeroboam had been essentially to worship um, Yahweh in the wrong place and in the wrong way. Rather than worshiping in Jerusalem, he chose to worship God wherever he wanted to, which was Dan and Bethel. And rather than worship God the right way, which is by the Word, and he, he, he chose a way that completely abrogated the first and the second commandment, and he worshiped these bulls which violated, obviously, the second commandment. And so he worshipped, you want to say, the right God the wrong way, much like Nadab and Abihu. Worse, I understand, but still, false worship matters. But here, as Ahab marries Jezebel, he begins a new practice. He actually went and served Baal. He's no longer pretending he's worshipping Jehovah. He takes a step down into the sewer and begins to worship Baal. And that shouldn't be surprising, because Jezebel is a name built on Bel, Beal, and Ethbaal, her father, is also a name obviously built on Beal. And names mattered in those days, like Micah in the Hebrew means Micha, which is who, me is who, Ka is like, and Yah is Yahweh. So Micah's name is who is like Yahweh. And all of the prophets have a name like that that's often connected to Ezekiel, El is God, right? They have a name often connected to the word God or the word Yahweh. And these pagan kings, their names display an idolatrous religion, and Ahab married into that. And as bad as he was, he got even worse. Now, my grandmother used to tell me, or my mother would always tell me, as Granny always said, and she'd say, show me your friends, and I'll tell you who you are. Well, that's even more true. It's birds of a feather flock together kind of thing, right? Um, show me your friends, and I'll tell you who you are. What kind of friends do you surround yourself with? Do they love God, or do they not? Do they fear God, or do they not? Do they help you worship God, or do they not? Do they lead you towards God or away from God? Show me your friends, and I'll tell you who you are. 
Well, if that's true for your friends, then I rather suspect it is, it's even more true for your wife. The person you select for your wife, young people, let me speak to you a second. The person you speak to select for your wife, or ladies, the man you select to your husband is a barometer of where your soul is at. Do they endear your soul to Christ? Who you choose to marry reveals much more than your taste in women or men. It reveals the sensitivity of your heart spiritually. Look at Genesis 6.5. No time to go there now. We're not going to go there now. I need to move on. But think about that. That's, that's, that's it's incisive. I remember once in the previous ministry, one of my deacons, faithful man, wife died. Suddenly, and several years later, he fell in love with this wealthy widow. They merged their bank accounts. She bought him a BMW. They're all getting, going swimmingly. She's coming to church, and we interview her for membership. And I'll never forget it. To the day that I asked her at a restaurant in Savannah, I'm talking about just. What does the gospel mean to you? This wasn't the first question, but it was, she wasn't doing, she was making, she had no sense of anything in the early questions. I said, you know, how did you come to know Christ? And she looked at me quizzically. I've always gone to church. And okay, so we went, and so eventually I got to, I said, tell me, what does the gospel mean to you? And she goes, gospel? And I said, yes, what does the gospel mean to you? You mean like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And I said, no, no, the Christian gospel, what is the gospel? And she looked at me and goes, gospel? And she'd been going to a PCUSA church for a long time. And I said to her, okay, so let me, what does the word salvation, it's all over the Bible. Can you tell me what the word salvation means? What are you saved from? What are you saved to? What are you saved by? Salvation? Okay, the cross of Jesus. And it was just crickets. And so, I asked her, you know, she'd been going to this PCSA church for a long, long time, who totally lost the gospel. And I asked her, we're sitting in a restaurant, a popular restaurant in Savannah, and I said to her, tell me, what would happen if this restaurant stopped serving food? And they had pictures of food, people talked about food, but they actually stopped serving food altogether. What would happen? And she goes, I suppose people would stop coming. I said, yes, people who wanted to eat food would stop coming. People with an appetite would stop coming. And so one of the things I said to her was one of my concerns is that you stayed at the PCSA church for decades, and it never seemed to cross your mind that your minister wasn't teaching you anything about the Bible or the gospel or about sin or about heaven or about hell, how to be saved, what it meant to follow Jesus. So I looked at my deacon and said to him, my brother, I don't think I can, after she left, I said to her, I, I don't think I can recommend her to join our church. She doesn't understand the gospel. And he goes, I know. I said, so that, that puts you in a bit of a sticky wicket. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, how can you marry her? But I love her. And I said, but she doesn't have any evidence that she knows Christ. Her soul is as dead as a hammer. 
He says, I know, he says, but he said, we've merged bank accounts and it'd be complicated to break it all off now. And I said to him, here's the question. He said, he said, I believe she's a Christian. He said, I believe she's a Christian. And I said, okay, so let me ask you this question then. Can you tell me, how does she endear your soul to Christ? Does she? He had nothing to say. Put his head down. Thanked me for lunch and got up and left. Now, there was more said than that, of course, but if that can happen to a, a, an earnest, godly deacon, it can happen to anyone. It can happen to the teenagers, happen to the 20-somethings. It can happen to some of the older people in this church. If you're left in a widowed situation, when you come to select your first wife or your next wife or your first husband or your second husband, the most important question is, do they endear your soul to Christ? And if so, How? They were the best of times, and they were the worst of times as Israel slipped deeper and deeper into idolatry. Let me wrap all this up here this evening quickly. They were also, I want you to see, the truest of times. In the middle of all this darkness, where's God? His worship's fallen by the wayside. His glory's departed. His word is being trounced. His presence is not being sought. Where's God? And it's one of the things you'll see again and again in the, in the Elijah narrative. He's there in the background, quietly, keeping His Word. They were the best of times, they were the worst of times, and they were also the truest times. If you see here political stability and financial prosperity, and spiritual apostasy, you also see the verbal authority of God's Word as He keeps an old, old promise. In His days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Zegub. And you think, well, that was unfortunate. No, it wasn't just unfortunate, it was foretold according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun, way back, hundreds of years before, depending on when you date the Exodus and so forth and so on. No time for that now. But in Joshua 6.26, remember we hear Joshua charges these people, hundreds of years before, cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn and with his youngest he shall set up its gate. How quietly, how quietly the wondrous word is kept. Even though God said it hundreds of years before, the old word still stands true. And the principle is you cannot, there's always a cost, though people underestimate it, for ignoring and defying the Word of God. It is true truth, true at all times, in all places, and for all people. An old promise is remembered, and a new prophet is raised up. Verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, 
There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, interestingly, we'll come back to this next week, but you notice the word of God doesn't actually come to Elijah supernaturally until verse 2, and the word of the Lord came to him. We often think God said, Elijah, let me let you into a secret here. There's going to be no rain for three and a half years. That's not how it happened. If you look in James chapter 5 quickly, right? Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore fruit. Now, he, he prayed, but the question is, why did he pray? This wasn't name-it-and-claim-it theology. This was read-it-and-claim-it theology. Elijah's been watching Israel apostatize, turn away from God, and walk all over God's covenant. And evidently, Elijah had read the Word of God in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verse 23 and 24, as part of his devotion. And you remember God said, in part of the curses, if you ignore my word and defy me and follow other gods, God says, the sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath your feet, iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed." And Elijah read that. He didn't hear a voice. He read a voice. And on the basis of what God said in His Word, Elijah said to God, God, in his prayer, how can you sit there in heaven and do nothing? You've got to stop the rain and send drought upon these people. Show your power, O God. How long will Israel mock you, the Baal worship was the male god, and Ashtoreth was the female god, and the, the mythology of the, the theology of Baalism was, Baal and Ashtoreth watch you have sex in your cultic shrine with prostitutes. And as you have sex with them, it kind of turns Baal on, and he has sex with Ashtoreth. And the thunderstorms are their orgasm in the sky. That was their theology, literally. Baal was the god of rain. And Elijah read in his Bible, God threatening to stop the rain. He says, Lord, how long is this imagination? But it's, I think it's true. I know it's true. Lord, how long will you let Baal mock you? And he prays. And he does more than pray. He steps out on the Word of God and says, it'll not rain for three and a half years by my Word. And God stopped the heavens. Not because God let Elijah into the secret supernaturally, but because Elijah opened his Bible and read it. And what he read, he believed. And what he believed, he prayed. And what he prayed, God did. That's how faith works. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And I dare, I dare say it, that wasn't the first time Elijah did something like that. He was a man who read his Bible. He was in his Bible. He took God's Word seriously. And if there's a lesson to be learned from the life of Elijah, it is simply this. You'll never stand steadfast in sliding times if you don't stand on this 
book, if you don't marinate your soul in the words of God and in the gods of the Word, because the two go together like water and wet. God has spoken. He says it, and that settles it, and it's on this book, which is why in this church our first great conviction is we exist to proclaim the Word of God and then model the grace of God and extol the glory of God. But it all begins with this book, central in this pulpit. But there are many churches where the pulpit's in the middle and the Bible's in the middle, but the Word of God has been shoved out the door. I want to ask you this evening, seriously, how does the, God, how does the Word of God, what rule, what place does it have in your life? Are you reading it? Are you pondering it? Are you hiding it, it in your heart? If you don't, and if you're not, and if you're drifting from it back to the Bible, there's no steadfastness, there's no witness without men and women who have the God-given wisdom to read what's in this book, to believe it, and to pray it, and to practice it, and to watch with expectancy as God fulfills it. May God give us grace so to be and so to do as we walk through the times of this remarkable man of God, Elijah. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for its truth, its power to convict us, how we need Jesus. He is the living Word. Lord Jesus, there's no life to please You without Your help, without justifying us, sanctifying us, cleansing us. Lord Jesus, as we open the Bible every day, may we regard it not just as a book of words, but as the book of God, a place to meet God and to seek God and to find God and to know God and to get our, our, our orders on how to serve God. We want to be pleasing to You. We want to stand steadfast. Though this world is fast going to hell, Father, keep us, keep this church on the narrow road that leads to heaven. For Christ's sake, amen.